0: From KUER News in Salt Lake City, this is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, Tara Westover is with us. You've probably heard of her by now. Her memoir, Educated, is kind of a sensation. It's the story of her growing up with her survivalist Mormon family in Idaho and how she found her way out, how she made her way to college. She has a PhD from Cambridge. Really, it's about her personal intellectual transformation. Westover says the book is about how education helps you create yourself. We'll be right back. KUER's community of sustainers do so much for the station. Because of their ongoing contributions, we're able to bring you award-winning local news, NPR coverage, Radio West, and our own podcasts. Starting at 5 bucks a month, you can be a sustainer too. Then, next time you hear a story you love, you'll know
1: you made it happen. Become a sustainer at KUER.org.
0: This is Radio West and Doug Fabrizio. By now you've probably heard the basics about Tara Westover's memoir. It's become a bestseller, kind of a sensation really. And the plot line is pretty extraordinary about how Tara grew up in this extremely conservative Mormon household, how her father is this survivalist, suspicious of the government and the medical establishment. She had no immunizations, no real documentation about her life, certainly no formal education until she was 17, where she managed to get into BYU and eventually Cambridge University. But before that, there's this moment after a brutal physical attack, one of a number of physical and emotional episodes of abuse where her older brother says to her, it's time to go, Tara. And what he meant was it's time to leave the house, but also go to college. Now, she was 17. Here's the reaction as she describes it in the book. I snorted. Tara says at the time, college was just irrelevant to her, that she already knew how her life was going to play out. But of course, as the memoir explains. It played out very much differently than that. Tara Westover is joining us today. She's an historian, and author based in Cambridge. Her book is called Educated, a Memoir. And uh, welcome to you. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on the show. I want to, I, I guess I want to begin with home. You still think of um, Idaho as home?
1: I do. I haven't been back in a long time. I can't really go back, yeah. but I, I think I'll always think of it as home. Yeah.
0: Tell me about the mountain, about peak because you have this this fondness absolutely comes through in the book
1: so I opened the book with a description of the mountain yeah. because um, so I grew up on this mountain my father grew up on the mountain my grandmother had even I think spent part of her youth there so we've been living on this mountain for a very long time and my dad told this really beautiful story about it he said um if you stood back from the mountain in the springtime when the snow was melting, if you, if, you, if you caught it at the right time, that you could see the impression of a woman's body on the mountain face. And he told us that the nomadic Indians had watched for her coming as a sign of spring, mm-hmm. a sign that winter was over, the mountain was thawing, and it was time to come home. So I opened the book with that image because a lot of the book is about the idea of home and the idea of identity and the idea of change and kind of all the different versions of a person that can exist in the space of a life yeah. and about whether your first self is your only true self or whether you're allowed to change and ultimately about the struggle that ensues when the people close to you maybe can't can't allow you to change or can't accept any other version of you
0: how do you describe your father's ideology it was hard for me to peg i mean in some ways it seemed like a kind of conventional ultra conservative Perspective survivalist, you know, the suspicion of the government, I don't think that's all that rare. But then there's this kind of Mormonism that's in there and I can't tell what the Mormon part is and what the kind of – how do you describe the ideology? Can you peg it?
1: I find it incredibly difficult to peg down and I have tried to be careful in the way I wrote the book because I don't see it as a story about Mormonism. My dad was extreme in all of his views. So he he had these extreme ideas about the government. He had extreme ideas about doctors and hospitals. He thought that they were dangerous. Sometimes it was that he believed they were corrupted by the Illuminati. Sometimes he sometimes it was religious, it was spiritual and he would say that it was a spiritual prohibition for guns going to the doctor and if you took a, a any kind of pharmaceutical or 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 a medical drug that it would damage your body and you would be punished spiritually, so the herbalism wouldn 't work or, or or the spirit of God would leave your body so there wasn't there was a, a kind of conspiracy aspect to it, there was a political aspect to it, there was a religious aspect to it i 've tried very hard to make the case in the book that this isn 't really a story about mormonism i think my i 've speculated that my dad had something like bipolar disorder, or some yep. kind of psychological um, irregularity and it 's been my opinion that the the mood disorder caused the religious extremism and not, not the other way around.
0: It's surprising how little this has to do with Mormonism, actually, the book. And I think that there's this impression, um, and you say it right up front, this book is not about Mormonism. I it's mean, the first sentence. It's yeah. the first sentence. <laughs> um, the fact that it's not about uh, Mormonism in, in, in most ways. I think that's, that might surprise some people. That they think it is that there's – but it's – explain how – I've heard you talk about how you didn't want to peg your father's kind of extremism to general – I get that part. But also that it's kind of beside the point almost it seemed to me.
1: I thought so and I didn't want the story to be another story that people take to confirm caricatures that they already have. So oh, here's this kind of religious – radical, and we know what that is. And so we don't need to engage with it. And I felt like, you know, my dad, as extreme as his views were, was a full, complicated human being. He wasn't just those views. And so I I didn't see any, it seemed factually inaccurate to me. I was publishing the book in other countries besides the United States, yeah. where people don't really know a lot about Mormonism. Yeah. It seemed really important that people not get the impression that this is a depiction of a mainstream Mormon man, because it isn't. I mean, everyone else in my community was Mormon, but they went to the doctor and their yep. kids went to school and they had birth certificates. So on a, on a one level, it was just factual. And on, an, on another level, I thought, what constructive purpose is there in putting a story out that just confirms everyone's caricatures and prejudices?
0: There's this um, moment you tell early on in the book of this was... You know, that Y2K freakout that some people were having, Um, 1999 shifts to 2000 and what's going to happen? Are planes going to fall from the ground? Are computers going to stop working? And your father very much was invested in the conspiracy that something was going to happen. And you tell this story about how midnight comes and you're, you're, you're awake. You're fairly young at this point. Nothing happens. And your dad's just sort of staring at the TV. And he doesn't – you finally go to bed. He, I think you, it was like 1.30 in the morning and nothing had happened. And in some ways you said that, that at least for the moment, it kind of broke his spirit. And you and you write that that next morning that he seemed smaller to you.
1: He seemed so childlike in his response. Mm-hmm. And I remember, I remember that my dad for my whole life had been this kind of – Noah, prophetic figure to me. I mean, i had never been allowed to go to school. I didn't have a lot of interaction with the outside world. I didn't have friends who I, I called them public school kids in my mind. I'd never been invited to a public school kid's house. I never had one come to mine. So I lived in this way where my dad's perspective on the world was completely my perspective. And to me, he was this kind of great man, this great prophetic figure. And I remember when I did go to sleep that night and he seemed so kind of broken by the uh by the just failure of god to deliver on this promise you know this was going to be the moment where he was going to be vindicated he was going to be proven right and people in the town had been kind of lovingly making fun of him for being you know he was trying to get a 10-year supply of food and he was telling people that they needed all this equipment for when the end came and they had to defend themselves and all this and this was going to be the moment that he was going to be proved not to be crazy and then nothing happened and i was really just struck with the injustice of it almost like a child who really wanted a toy and didn't get it and i think it was the first time that i saw my dad in that way where yeah. he seemed kind of childlike and of course it wasn't just y2k i mean every my dad was constantly finding random signs that the world was was going to end and that this would this would be the big one and, and they would never play out and they would never play out
0: yeah yeah it's interesting you say that um you, you wondered how, how could God deny him this? Almost like you were disappointed in God for like just, you know, throw him a bone once or twice.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've been waiting for this for our whole lives, you know. Yeah. And I didn't know when it was going to happen, but I did know the cost to my dad of waiting for it. You know, he was putting a lot of money into these preparations. And then just the social, again, like people I think were so, so often just – gently making fun of him they didn't mean it in any kind of mean way yeah. but in in a way that i think it yeah it, it felt sad to me when the when the world didn't end it, it really did i thought it would be a reversal yeah and suddenly my family who had been on the bottom of the social heap and everyone made fun of us were homeschoolers we were these kind of weird people that suddenly we would be the ones with food and we yeah. would be the ones with fuel and we would we would kind of be these like aristocrats in this new economy that was you know Completely, when the world ended, that we would, we would be on top, and I think there was a, there was a weird sense of disappointment, not just for my father, but you know, almost for myself.
0: Your mother's story arc, her transformation, I think is really interesting. She at, at the beginning, I mean, she's she's not all in. It doesn't seem with your father on everything right at the front. I mean, she has this reluctance to being a midwife, which she eventually becomes gets pretty good at it. She's this herbalist and believes in all this holistic medicine. But she equivocates a little bit at some of your father's ideas. But then she begins to transform. Would you just talk a little bit about that? Because her story is really interesting, I think.
1: I've always felt like there are two versions of my mother. There's the version of her that she is when she's with you. And then there's the version of her that she is when she's with my father. And I mean, She seemed this way to me since I was really young. I remember when my dad first began to develop his ideas about medical doctors, that they are part of the Illuminati, that they're corrupt, that we couldn't go. And my mother did not agree. You know, he would give these big lectures, and then after he would leave, mother would kind of say to me, well, doctors aren't all bad, and when people are really sick, they they really ought to go. And I remember there was a a time when my father first started talking about doctors in this way, and my mother didn't really agree, but she hadn't confronted him about it. And my family took a, a car trip, and we crashed, uh, coming back. We drove all night, and my older brother was driving, and he fell asleep and we were going about sixty five miles an hour and the car left the road. We smashed through two telephone poles, and then we uh, didn 't stop till we hit a tractor and My mother was injured really badly; her, she was sitting in the passenger' seat, and her head smashed into the windshield, you know hard enough that the whole windshield cracked to crack around the entire length of the windshield. And she had a, a pretty serious head injury and was not taken to get a CAT scan, was never taken to the hospital. We just took her home. And on the one hand, I kind of think, you know, I've just always wondered what would have happened if she had said to my dad, I don't agree with you about doctors. Yeah. Um, but I think he probably thought that she did agree with him. And so I've, I've always kind of wondered, you know, would he have not taken her to the doctor if he knew that, that she would have wanted to go? Or did he not know? And, and I, I don't know the answer to that.
0: You mentioned that one accident. But it seems like every other month there was an accident going on in your family. It's extraordinary. And the thing that's interesting is the recklessness of your father, basically. in this, He had this scrap junkyard with lots of heavy things. And you were a young – you were a little girl expected to work in this. He was throwing stuff people were constantly getting burned or, or, or really serious injuries. And the, the book's a, a lot about that. But I'm trying to figure out how you explain that recklessness because it seems to be like that it was centered on this kind of impressive sense of faith, that he believed that angels were protecting the place and protecting you. So in that sense, I get it. But then the other part just seemed like malicious neglect too.
1: I think of all the things I – couldn't quite understand when I was writing the book that had to redraft and redraft and talk to my brothers and redraft and redraft the scrapyard was I just I didn't understand it either I didn't get it um we were injured so much and it was so preventable um you know my dad didn't believe in safety equipment we never wore safety harnesses we would build these big buildings and be walking on beams 30 feet in the air and no safety harnesses and I think now I have a different perspective on it. Now I feel like whatever was going on with my dad, the bipolar disorder, whatever it is that, that you think it was, and I, I don't know what it was. I'm not a medical professional, but that's how I understand it. Yep. I I think it, he just was not able to evaluate risk. He didn't understand it. And he did have this insane belief that nothing bad would happen unless God wanted it to happen. And then even after someone was really horribly injured, my in my dad's mind, that would become— That there was a reason that had to happen, and of course it would never be allowed to happen again, so we can just do the same things. So he was incredibly reckless in the scrapyard. And I think it's hard for people to hear about what happened and not just jump to maliciousness. I personally don't think it was malicious. I think as a child I didn't know what it was. I did not have the information I needed to understand what was happening to me. He would ask me to do something and I would be terrified, but I would do it, and then I would get hurt, and I just didn't know how to interpret it. I knew my father loved me, and I knew he cared about my safety, and yet he was completely unable to keep me safe. And I think I would internalize that as maybe my own fault, that I should have been able to do it, that it was a simple thing, or some—or more often I think I would internalize it as, as him not loving me.
0: Yeah.
1: And it wasn't until I got older and learned about the concept of mental illness and came to understand his mind a little bit more and have more empathy for it that i i realized people can do horrible even abusive things without attending in any way intending to do it and my father for me the greatest proof of this is i mean the worst injury that happened to anyone in my father's junkyard the very worst one happened to my dad because he um he was removing a fuel tank from a car cuz if you're going to sell a car junk you have to take the fuel tank off it's too dangerous they won't take it otherwise and any other person <laughs> would have drained that tank because that's what you do you just puncture it you drain all the fuel out and then you can take it off any way that you like you can cut it off with a cutting torch or you can get tools and remove the remove the belts but my dad decided that that was completely unnecessary you know that's what pansy liberals do they drain <laughs> the tank i don't need right. to, i don't need to do that yeah. so he, he didn't he just got a cutting torch and he just started cutting this Tank off that was full of fuel and the car exploded. I mean, very predictable. And he was burned terribly. I mean, his hands would never recover. His face would always be different and he would, he nearly died. And the recovery was months and months. And then, of course, my parents, because of the beliefs that they had, they treated that at home. They didn't take him to the hospital. They had no IV, they had no morphine. And I think. So it wasn't the case that my dad would put us in a lot of danger and keep himself safe. And it wasn't the case that when we were injured, like my father lit his leg on fire and was covered in third-degree burns, and they also treated that at home. It wasn't the case that he would deny us medical care and then give himself medical care. I mean, he really, truly believed that that, that being at home and treating it at home was the best way because he really believed that the doctors were going were to try to harm us in some way. And so for him— That's what love looked like, treating it at home. And the weirdest part of the whole story is I've heard my dad say that that accident, that burn, that horrible thing that happened to him, that he learned so much from that and received so much spiritual enlightenment from it that it was foreordained. And he's used that word to me, foreordained. And he has said to me that he will very happily go back up on the mountain and remove another fuel tank without draining the fuel because he's learned what what he needed to learn the the mission of that has been achieved so God would never allow it to happen again. Yeah. The idea that it happened because fuel is flammable has not has just not managed to get in. Yeah. So I think it it is hard for people to understand
0: but he does it doesn't that have to be malicious. He does that throughout the book, you know, th- that went completely opposed to the idea of you going to college. But then, when you get in, it was proof somehow that homeschooling was. You know, he's always sort of after the fact, kind of justifying it, which I guess is typical. It just and made him more vulnerable to me. I think
1: we all do it to some degree. Yeah. He just did it in extreme ways because yeah. everything about it him was extreme. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, he was a he was a complicated person, but I think the temptation for people is to make him into a mom, into a monster, yeah. and I don't think that that's I don't think that that's right. I don't think it's accurate. I don't think it's fair.
0: You say you were homeschooled, but you weren't really homeschooled. I mean, um, that was a pretty feeble effort by your mother and others to actually homeschool you. And I think the thing that's really interesting about that is what kind of education you feel like you did get that wasn't the book learning part and the part that's made you the really terrific writer you are now, the terrific scholar you are now, like having a different perspective, not a conventional, I mean, you barely read stuff.
1: We were definitely literate because we were taught to read. We read a lot of, we read the Bible, We read the Book of Mormon. We had books in the house. I think when my older brothers were, when they were young, my mother had made a lot of effort with the homeschool. And then that had just fallen away. She became a midwife. She became an herbalist. She had seven children. There was a farm. The Just practical things yeah. got in the way. And so by the time I came along, I was the youngest. There just wasn't, you know, we I never wrote an essay for my mother. We never had a lecture. We never took a test. Um, there weren't the textbooks that you needed. We had a couple math books, but we didn't have anything past maybe the seventh, sixth or seventh grade. It's didn't have the book, so you couldn't study it even if you wanted to. And I didn't really particularly want to. So um, yeah, we had this just very informal education. I think in as much as I really value the education I received, I think it was because, you know, my parents had this (laughs) attitude, this idea about education that was very much about the individual learning and the onus was very much on the individual. And so they would say to us all the time, you can teach yourself anything but then someone else can teach it to you. And obviously they took that a bit far. It's not necessarily how I would raise my own children. But I think I think it did serve me well that that just belief, that central kind of idea that what I learn and and how I learn it and how I go about learning it is all entirely my own responsibility. And other people can help me and teachers are like consultants and they can be so useful but the responsibility is mine.
0: Tara Westover is with us. Her memoir is called Educated. We'll take a break and come back in a moment. You're listening to Radio West from KUER. KUER is working harder than ever to tell Utah stories with podcasts. You can take Doug Fabrizio's thoughtful Radio West interviews wherever you go, see how deep our reporters' work goes with more to say, and keep up with Utah politics on 45 Days. Listen to the stories you love on your own time, and we'll keep you up to date about new projects, too. Search for KUER wherever you get your podcasts. This is Radio West. I'm Doug Fabrizio. Today in the program, Tara Westover is with us. We're talking about her book, a memoir called Educated. I wanted to um, ask you about – there's this story you tell in the book about your father kind of going on and on. And he did this, I guess, a lot about modesty and how there was this woman in your ward, your home ward, who had that day at church worn this blouse that he didn't think was appropriately modest and – But the way he put it, um, you say, really stayed with you. He said that this woman, like she bent over to pick up a a songbook, and she wanted it. She wanted him to see it. And you say it made you worried that you could be growing up to be the wrong sort of woman. Would you explain that?
1: Well, I think, you know, it's funny. He gave a lot of lectures pretty often about what women would wear, that he would see at church or or really anywhere. And— I think for a lot of my childhood, I just tuned them out, and I think the reason that one stayed with me is because I was getting to an age where I was really thinking about that. And I remember being very confused about that particular lecture because she had been wearing this very loose-fitting blouse, and usually when my dad was talking about women's modesty it was because it's too tight. And I just remember thinking, like... What would be the right amount because if it's too tight then it wouldn't it wouldn't do that if she bent over, but then it's too tight, and if it's loose, then that's what's going to happen when she bends over and I just remember thinking I bend over all the time, I never think about i just thought i just I'm not sure that I'm able to move through a room in a way that isn't you know this kind of slutty whoreish version that is being described to me, and there's not an outfit that I can imagine that will do the job, and then oh, there's the added factor that if if you were kind of Looking a bit scrappy, then sometimes you be told like, "Oh, well, you don't look very nice. Why don't you go do something about that?" And so I just felt like there wasn't there wasn't a way to exist that was that was that was okay that was that wasn't going to be fall into one of these kind of really negative categories.
0: Yeah, we have to talk about your brother uh, Sean. You call him in the book. Um, this is the most complicated relationship, I think. Um, there are times when he's your protector, your healer, your buddy, your road trip buddy. Um, and then there are times when he is just so calculatedly cruel. Um, and then after the damage is done, he comes – it's like this typical abusive relationship. He There's a couple of times where he beats the crap out of you and then comes back to apologize later. Um, And you forgive and you forgive and you forgive. Um, Talk a little bit about about how you understand Sean.
1: It was a really complicated relationship. I mean, he could be this incredibly kind, sensitive person. And I think sometimes he was really aware of safety in a way that my dad wasn't. So in the scrapyard, he would save my life pretty regularly um, by just confronting my dad when he, my dad would tell me to do something that was really dangerous and, and Sean would just appear and say she's not doing that and they would have a huge confrontation over it um, Sean is one of the only people I've ever seen stand up to my dad um, and he just did it as a matter of course so in my mind he he did become this kind of father figure I think because hmm. my own father was not able to do that but he had this whole other side of his personality that he could be really manipulative he could be really controlling I think he had a lot of self-loathing Probably more self-loathing than any person I've ever met. And I think it was too much for him. And yeah. he, there were moments he couldn't handle it and he needed other people to hate themselves as much as he hated himself. And sometimes it would start as a game. It would almost always start as a game or he would kind of ask you to do something. Maybe get him a glass of water and then you would. And then he would say he wanted ice in it. And so you'd go get the ice, and then when you brought it back, he would say, well, "What is this crap? Like, I didn't, I didn't ask for this." And then so you, he did this with it girlfriends out. too. He did it with girlfriends. He did it with me. It, it was really clearly about control, and yeah. he wanted to see how long could he keep it going. How yeah. long would you just do everything that he said? And how long would you pretend that he hadn't just said a minute ago that he wanted the ice? You know, what could he get you to to just pretend like like his version of what was happening was real? And then and then at, at, at the point where you just wouldn't play anymore he would get really violent. And again, it would be in this kind of cloak of a game. Sometimes he would be laughing. He'd be acting like you were just kind of wrestling, having a good time, but he would be choking you. Okay. And so it was this very reality bending, but very violent experience that would just happen a lot. And you know, I've developed a theory from this. I think all abuse, no matter what kind of abuse it is, is foremost an assault on the mind because I mm. think mm. if you're going to abuse someone you have to invade their reality and you have to distort it and the way my brother did that was by pretending like it was a game yeah. and then after it was over he would come and and kind of confirm to you that it had been a game and, and convince you and he was very good at it and it worked on me for years that that really you'd been having a fine time and that if if you were hurt it was because you know, you hadn't spoken up clearly enough or, and he would say, oh, you know, next time we're having fun and if something's wrong, you just, you really need to say. And it wouldn't matter that you'd been screaming at him to stop. You would just think, oh yeah, I guess I could have said that more clearly. These
0: were, it was the, this was the hardest part of the book for me to read were these moments. Um, there was, there's one in a parking lot at a grocery store that's brutal, um, breaks your wrist at one point. I mean, there are, there's a, also a moment at one particular attack where he's basically choking you out um, and your brother, Tyler, whom we'll get to in a moment, um, intervenes. And I wonder what would have happened um, if it, – this seemed like – this This moment seems to me like um, a turning point for you. And I wondered what would have happened if that hadn't if, – if Sean hadn't been abusive. Would you have had – would you have been thinking about turning point moments? Would you have been – like, would you have gone to college if you hadn't had that experience? I mean, I know that's a silly hypothetical, but it did, it did make me wonder.
1: I don't know. I was pretty miserable working in my dad's junkyard. <laughs> <So> <laughs> that maybe, might have been enough. That might have been enough. But I think that I think my brother Tyler, when he said to me, you have to go, you have to get out of here, it was because he'd seen that. Yep. And he I don't think he knew the extent of the relationship, but he'd seen enough of it that he thought I needed to get out. And so – I think it was part of what drove me to want to leave, yeah. but I, th- I think it was more, you know, when I think of the relationship between education and my, re- and my relationship with my brother, what stands out to me is that I had said that I only had access to my dad's perspective, and that was true. I, I, everything he told me about the past, I believed, because I had no other access to history or anything like that. But when I went to college, when I went to BYU, that started to change. Mm. And I didn't know anything when I got there. I raised my hand, went to my first class and asked what the Holocaust was, which is really awkward. Yeah, um, Don't do that. And, uh, but then I, after I learned about it, I took an entire course in Jewish history and I started to have my own ideas so that when my dad would come and deliver these kind of lectures about the New World Order and they had a decidedly anti-Semitic tinge to them, I would recognize that as coming from the Protocols of the of Zion. And I, I knew the history of that text because I'd read it and I'd read about it. And I had I had begun to develop the ability that I'd never had before to be in my, my family situation, a situation where I, I had always agreed with everything that they said, because what they said was the only thing I'd ever heard before, right. and have my dad say, this is what happened, and have my own self think, no, it isn't. That isn't what happened. It's interesting that you think it is, but but it's not what happened. And I think that ability to have my own ideas about the past would become really important because it would start to happen with my brother about the present. I would have my own ideas about what was happening mm-hmm. and what had happened in the moments before, so that my brother who, you know, I mean, there was an incident where he he grabbed me by my hair and hauled me down the hallway and shoved my head in the toilet, and he did this in front of a friend of mine. I was 17, and my friend Charles was there. Mm-hmm. And after it was all over, Sean told me, oh, I'm so sorry, and we were just having a good time, and next time we're having fun. Make sure you say something. And I was so persuaded by that. I went to Charles and tried to convince him of it, which I I didn't get anywhere. I mean, he knew what he'd seen. But he didn't really try to convince me I was wrong because he could see, I think, how deeply under my brother's power I was. But you talk about a turning point. I don't know if it was that time that my brother Tyler saw something and said, get out. I think for me, the real turning point came a month after the incident with Charles, where And it was the parking lot incident where my brother attacked me and people started looking in our direction and I immediately started to laugh because I wanted everyone to think it was a game. I wanted to think it was a game. It was so much nicer to think it was a game than to think he was attacking me. But later that night when I got home... I, I wrote about what had happened in my journal. And I wrote exactly what had happened. And I wrote that I had been terrified.
0: And wait, this was the first time you had written about exactly what This was what the first
1: happened. time I'd written about exactly what had happened. I'd hinted before, and yep. I'd made really vague statements about it. And I'd said I was frightened of my brother, but I hadn't said why. Yep. This was the first time I wrote what happened. And I, I wrote that I'd been terrified, and I wrote that I'd been in pain. And I wrote that in that moment I would have ripped my brother apart if I could have, for what he was doing to me. And while I was writing, he knocked on the door he came in and he said what he always said. He said, "Oh, I had no idea that I was even hurting you until you were limping and I saw that you couldn 't use your wrists later and next time we 're having fun, just make sure you say something if, if you 're being hurt and and then he left and I went back to my journal and I wrote that I had no idea who was right i didn 't know what his experience had been. maybe he had experienced it as a game. But I did know what my experience had been, and I had not been having fun. And I think it was probably the first time that that happened, that I didn't immediately yield my reality to his reality. It was maybe the first time at the end of this process where my brother attempted to dominate me, and at the end of that whole process there were still two minds present, two distinct minds, not one having gained control over the other. And I do think it was the same part of me that when my dad would go on these lectures about, you know, the Jews in the New World Order, that would say, yeah, interesting, but that's not what happened. Yeah. That it was kind of the same skill with my brother to say, weird, weird that you think that. But that's, that's, that's not what I experienced.
0: I want to have you read a part of the book, if you would, because there's this moment that you write about. It's a time when you were, um, you were kneeling on the carpet as your father was, I guess he was praying or testifying, I think is how you explained it in the book. Um, I guess this happened all the time. But you say you felt taken out of yourself, Just say something about that, and would you read this section?
1: Yeah, so my dad would give these lectures, and um, I was just listening to one of them, and for some reason I knew that I would always be expected to have my children when I had them at home, and my mother would have to deliver them. I would never be allowed to have them in a hospital, and I'd never been in a hospital, so for all I knew that was a good idea. I was about 16 in this paragraph, but it was the first time that I wondered if maybe I would want to have them in a hospital, and I wondered what that would mean for my relationship with my dad, and I wondered if there could even be a version of myself that would be capable of standing up to my dad, and I wasn't sure that there could be. So I'll just start to read it. There was a moment that winter. I was kneeling on the carpet, listening to dad testify of mother's calling as a healer, when my breath caught in my chest and I felt taken out of myself. I no longer saw my parents or our living room. What I saw was a woman grown, with her own mind, her own prayers, who no longer sat childlike at her father's feet. I saw the woman's swollen belly, and it was my belly. Next to her sat her mother, the midwife. She took her mother's hand and said she wanted the baby delivered in a hospital by a doctor. I'll drive you, her mother said. The women moved toward the door, but the door was blocked by loyalty, by obedience, by her father. He stood immovable, but the woman was his daughter, and she had drawn to herself all his conviction, all his weightiness. She set him aside and moved through the door. I tried to imagine what future such a woman might claim for herself. I tried to conjure other scenes in which she and her father were of two minds, when she ignored his counsel and kept her own. But my father had taught me that there are not two reasonable opinions to be had on any subject. There is truth, and there are lies. I knelt on the carpet— Listening to my father, but studying this stranger, and felt suspended between them, drawn to each, repelled by both. I understood that no future could hold them, no destiny could tolerate him and her. I would remain a child, in perpetuity always, or I would lose him.
0: I wanted to ask you about... Um Tyler comes home from school. He's your brother, who he's the first one who had, had the courage to leave and go into college. And he comes home and um, he brought a copy of Les Miserables. Um, and you write about how you were impressed with that and so you went and bought your own copy. Um, but you say you weren't able to distinguish the fictional story from the factual backdrop. What was that about?
1: Well, I just, I'd never studied history, so I couldn't really tell any meaningful difference between Jean Valjean and Napoleon. To me, they were both fictive characters of a fictive world. You know, on my end, I, when I did go to college, I thought Europe was a country. I didn't know anything about French history, I didn't know anything about France. Um, yeah, I I just I knew so little that I I wasn't even really able to benefit from reading this historical novel as a historical novel because I I couldn't I couldn't distinguish between the history and the fiction.
0: The, and you took this inter, introductory American history course at, at Brigham Young University, and it's one of those courses that you know college freshmen take, I guess. They're, it's a big auditorium, um, but it wasn't the kind of history that your father had been teaching you about. Um, and at this point, though, you say that. It, like early on in the college experience, even though you had had the courage to take the ACT twice.
1: I think I took it four times. Did only, you? I only wrote about it twice. So I thought it would be repetitive. And my <laughs> readers have to go through that with me every well, time. You
0: got, well, you got in and you're 17 years old, um, had never – had been formally educated at that point. But you say at this point in the story that you were clinging to every truth and every doctrine that your father had given you. you And it's interesting to hear you talk about the um, exotic Gentile life of Provo, Utah, too. I think that's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah, I had been raised in a much stricter religion than the students at BYU, and so Everything from the movies they watched to the clothes they wore, they just seemed so licentious to me. And I thought of them as Gentiles. In my mind, I was the only real Mormon at BYU.
0: One thing your brother Sean and your father agreed on was that college life was making you uppity. Um, And Sean took to calling you names, and um, one of them was the N-word. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about this, how this struck you, especially after you had discovered the history of slavery, which you had no idea about at college. And for the first time, seen a picture of Martin Luther King. Um, Explain a a, a little bit about that, because this was kind of this path of awareness that you write about.
1: Well, I'd heard of slavery because my dad talked about the founding a lot. But the version of slavery that I learned was strange. I won't really go into it. But I knew about slavery What I hadn't ever heard of before was the civil rights movement. So that really shocked me. I remember when the date came up on the screen in this history course, you know, 1963. And I thought, don't they mean 1863? Uh, I guess in my mind, all of this had happened. We'd realized there was this massive flaw in the Constitution. We'd all been called upon to live up to our ideals. And, of course, we had heard and immediately changed. And... um, so I took this whole course and I learned about the civil rights movement and I realized how recent it had been. You know, my mother had been born in the early fifties and realizing that this had had to happen when she was a young woman, you know, and that this, the history of this injustice and this struggle could be, it was measured not in geological time, not even even in historical time in the fall of civilizations or formation of mountains. It was, it was very recent and I could measure it in the wrinkles on my mother's face, you know, so recent. And, and I, I didn't, I guess I was struck by it, but I kind of went on with my life. And then I went home that summer and I was working construction for my dad. And what had happened for many years is, you know, I I would work in the, in the scrapyard and I would get, my hands would get really dirty and I had long hair. And so I'd brush it out of my face. It's quite windy. And my face would get black. And my brother, that's when he had started calling me that word. And he'd been doing it for years and I'd never thought about it. If I'd Mm -hmm. thought anything, I, I guess I must have thought it was funny. I don't know what I thought, but I never thought about it. But after I took that course... I remember the first time he 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 called me that, and it was it was so shocking. And I guess I don't know as though I really could have articulated why I was uncomfortable. I was still developing the language and the understanding that that I would get later. But I think I had started out on this kind of path of awareness that there were people from whom corrupt power had to be wrested. It wasn't just the case that everyone had agreed that, that we hadn't lived up to our ideals and everyone had changed. Like People had had to be fought against. This, this had to happen. This was a conflict, a real conflict. And that was the first time that I saw my family and myself mm. as participating in this dialogue and this vernacular and this whole language that had been developed for no other reason other than t- to dehumanize people. And it was so uncomfortable to see my own family in that tradition. And a part of me, I think, will never be able to really see them that way. But I, I, so I don't know. I had all these feelings. I didn't really know how I felt about them. But I did know that a thousand times before my brother had called me that word and I had laughed. And now I, I could no longer laugh. And again, it was it was another one of those things that my family had one way of thinking. And I was I was suddenly finding myself hmm. thinking very differently.
0: I want to ask you about there's this story you tell the first time you went to Cambridge. And there's this story uh, where you're with this group from BYU, and you go out on the roof of that beautifully gothic chapel at King's College in Cambridge, and the wind was gusting on this day. And there is in the story, I think, this kind of lesson in how you regard the wind, and it's a really lovely story. Would you talk about
1: that? So it was so windy, and this chapel was really high, and everybody else, all these other students, were just really clinging to the walls. They were really terrified. And I was the only one. I was perfectly indifferent to it. I mean, I would roofed so many hay sheds. I just couldn't have found a place that would have been more comfortable than on top of that roof. And one of my professors made the observation because I was so uncomfortable in Cambridge. You just you couldn't have picked a place where I would have felt less like I belonged. Yeah. And uh, And he said to me, Everyone else here was completely comfortable until we came to this great height, and you have made the complete opposite journey. Or <laughs> he said, "This is the first time I've seen you at home in your own skin since I've known you," and and he just couldn't figure it out. And of course, it was just I was I was a roofer. That's what I was, and I was on a roof, <laughs> so I felt perfectly at home with with myself.
0: The, and this uh, professor, uh, Doctor Carey, is his name. He um, he tells you. And he refers to George Bernard Shaw's play, Pygmalion, that whoever you become, that's who you're always, who you always were. And he tells the story, you know, he says that, you know, Eliza was just a cockney girl in a nice dress until she believed in herself. And that seemed like kind of an epiphany in some way for you.
1: Yeah, he said she was just a, she was just a a woman in a nice dress and until she um, believed in herself and then it didn't matter what dress she wore. And I think he was – I don't know how much insight he had into my head. Mm-hmm. But I was having a really hard time. I had gone to Cambridge and I was getting all this praise from this one professor at Cambridge, Professor Steinberg, who was had a very different idea of myself than I had of myself. He had an idea of myself as, as a scholar. And I had an idea of myself as a whore because that's what my brother had called me from the time I was pretty young. And I'd had this relationship with him. And that was so – deeply ingrained in my conception of who I was. You know, I'd written a journal entry about my brother when I was 16 that included the sentence, it's strange how you give the people you love so much power over you. But my brother had more power over me than I ever could have imagined because he had defined me to myself. Yeah. And there really isn't a greater power than that. And I think, I think Dr. Carey was trying to help me redefine myself in a different way. And and I think he did help. And it, it was a... I, one of the things he said is that... Um, you know he did think that people could change and it was his view that that if you did change into something else as you said that's what you always were and 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 if 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 at another point in your life you had looked like something else that was the illusion mm. so he had this kind of metaphor of gold versus fool's gold and he said you know fool's gold it only it only glitters under a certain light but 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 and gold he says will sometimes look dull under certain lights even gold looks dull but he he sort of believe, you know, whatever you become, if it turns out that, that you're gold, that you're able to do this, and Professor Steinberg thinks that you can do this. Well, that's who you always were. And, and everything else, that was the illusion. That was the lie.
0: Eventually, your life in Cambridge, you, you say, was transformed. And you, you say this in the book, the shame I had felt about my family leaked out of me almost overnight. What, what, do, you, what, what do you mean? What happened?
1: Well, I eventually would confront my my mother at least, about my brother's violence, and she would she would believe me, and she would take it very seriously, and she would just be so sorry that she hadn't done more to keep it from happening, to stop it from happening, and I I, I did feel like I just lived a whole—when she said those words, I just felt like I lived my whole life over again, and it was like I became someone who had parents who, who would have stopped that, because— I had grown up as someone kind of thinking they know about this, and they're choosing to do nothing about mm-hmm. it because they don't think I'm worth helping. So I think hearing her be so sorry, yeah, I, I felt like I just lived my whole life over again, and and it was better.
0: There was an effort um, to get you back. Your your parents. Uh, you had gotten a fellowship at Harvard, and your parents came to visit you there, and. The idea was they were going to try to basically reconvert you, um, and there's a moment when your father wants to give you a priesthood blessing, um, and you said no.
1: Well, so my mother had believed me about my brother, <clears throat> but my father didn't. So when I confronted my father, he decided I was lying, and he he decided that I was possessed, and that that was his explanation for why I'd said the things I'd said about my brother and my mother who had always been these two different people, suddenly became this one person. And the person that she became was not my mother. It was my my father's wife. And she denied ever having believed me. And she took his side completely. So I was in this... They told my brother what I'd said. And I I was disowned by him. My parents supported that decision. So I was in this situation where... I was estranged from my family, and that was not my choice. I very much wanted not to be estranged from them. And then my dad came to visit me at Harvard, and he offered me this way back into the family. And what that looked like was this blessing that for my father was, I think, tantamount to an exorcism, that he would cast the spirit out of me, and I could then say that the, that the spirit had made me say what I'd said. I could deny everything. And there was this bizarre period when my where my parents were walking around Boston and we were sightseeing, and I was wrestling with myself, just thinking, trying to convince myself that there was some dignity in what I planned to do in denying my own memories and pretending like there was no real difference between what I knew to be true and hmm. what I knew to be false. You
0: were on the fence then.
1: I thought I could do it. Yep. I thought, I thought wow. maybe it was a deal I could make. And, wow. Um, I it just seemed like a small price to pay to just kind of trade out your memories in order to win the love of your parents. It just seemed it seemed like something I could do, but in the moment, uh I I couldn't do it. And I had to kind of tell my my parents, "I really want to be a part of your family, but I I can't be a part of it like this."
0: The book is not about Mormonism as you say. It has Mormonism in it of course as we've said. Um you're no longer an active Latter-day Saint anymore. I'm not sure how much you even like to talk about this, but did your relationship with Mormonism, did you connect that with this experience you had with your family? And was that part of the reason why you're not interested in it, at least anymore?
1: I don't think so. I think people will try to make that connection, and they're welcome to. But for myself, there was a period when I was at BYU I did very much convert to mainstream Mormonism. And I've always distinguished between Mormonism as I experienced it at BYU and Mormonism, as I experienced it growing up, it's not the same religion. Right. It's just not the same religion. And um I rejected my father's worldview. I found Mormonism at BYU to be much kinder, much gentler. And I had people at BYU who saved my life almost, you know. They were just so kind. There's a kind. beautiful story about a bishop. Yeah. I had a bishop who just, just was so kind and, like, relentlessly kind. Yeah. And, um, I I can't really account for that. And I think probably for him, religion was an important part of that. So I think there were people in the book who did horrible things for religion. There are people in the book that did wonderful things for religion. Maybe it's just that they were good people. And then maybe the other, you know, I I don't know what religion plays in it. But, you know, I don't talk a lot about why I'm not Mormon anymore. For me, I, I have a lot of respect for it. My whole family is Mormon. My extended family is Mormon. I didn't feel like I could live a genuine life and be Mormon. I didn't feel like I could be genuine to myself. I thought that the conceptions of of gender, of the kind of life that you're supposed to live, of the age that you're supposed to get married and the age you're supposed to have children. I felt like it was prescribing a life that was not a bad life. And a lot of people I knew had that life and, and were very happy. But I didn't feel like I could be. Yeah. So it, it wasn't about my dad. it was It was just about me. And so I haven't really... I don't I don't blame the church for my dad's kind of extremism. I, I don't think it's at all a Mormon attribute that when I confronted my parents about my brother being violent and asked for their help that he decided I was possessed. I don't you don't find that anywhere in the Book of Mormon. I've read it. It's not there.
0: <laughs> Has this experience of writing a memoir now transformed your professional aspirations? You are a scholar and a historian like what's the next book you're thinking about it is it a scholarly piece or are you thinking novels now
1: i don't know honestly writing this book and especially publishing the book has just taken every ounce of creativity discipline emotional <laughs> discipline that i have and uh i don't i don't really i haven't thought about the next thing i did not expect I didn't expect the book to be published. Hmm. I definitely didn't expect it to be, uh, to be what it's become. So for me, I, I'm, I'm still catching up. I'm going to be playing catch-up for a while, I think.
0: Well, stay in touch and let us know. <laughs> be interested. Any way of reconciling with your father, do you think, at this point?
1: I don't know. I tried to write the book in such a way that people could kind of impose the ending that felt the most authentic to them. For myself, I don't know. I've, I've accepted that whether or not my family changes is just not within my power.
0: Tara Westover. Her book is Educated, a Memoir. Tara, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Radio West is a production of KUER News. The program uh, today was produced by Claire Jones. The show is also produced by Benjamin Bombard and Elaine Clark. I'm Doug Fabrizio.